Good afternoon. It's Friday the 24th of July 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, well, I suppose the uh, story of the day, Patrick, is that uh, the new face covering rules have come into force in England. Uh, so says the BBC. Uh, many others talking about this, of course. Uh, we're following on from uh, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland by, uh, by requiring people to wear face masks in many public areas like shops and so on following the lead from scotland so it's like scotland's dictating the pace mike of the social engineering agenda in the uk uh, absolutely but uh, it's all a bit confusing as you'll find out uh, as we'll discuss shortly uh, but in the meantime uh, some media outlets advising people perhaps not to report others for not wearing face masks in shops so this is birmingham live uh, and uh, so the government's urging the public not to report people uh, for not wearing face masks. Well, Little, uh, for their part, released a statement uh, saying this. Uh, in line with government guidance, wearing a face covering in store is the responsibility of the individual, not the retailer, and should only be enforced by the police. Uh, the government has stipulated that shop workers should not refuse entry to any customers that are not wearing a face covering. So it's all already becoming very confusing. Is it mandatory or is it not mandatory? So basically, you have a situation, Mike, where some stores, uh, supermarkets, they're, they're going to enforce this. Others aren't. Uh, what are they going to do? Call are the police going to come and patrol? Because it seems to me the big concern is they don't want their staff having to do, quote, law enforcement. Well, the question is, Patrick, are shops uh, starting to enforce this or they're not? Little suggesting that they're not going to enforce it. What's, uh, what's Sainsbury's doing? Well, this is interesting. So this is a... You see a Twitter storm right now. The term Sainsbury's is uh, trending on Twitter, Mike. So uh, it looks like uh, Tesco's, Asda, uh, Morrison's, and other big supermarkets will be supporting mask wearing, but Sainsbury's uh, is not. I, I think Asda might not either. So this is an angry uh, mask wearing uh, crusader here saying Sainsbury's official Twitter account is letting you all know you'll be at a higher risk of catching COVID-19 in their stores. I hope that Tesco's, Asda, Morrison's, and other big supermarkets will be supporting mask wearing and reducing the risk of COVID-19 spreading in their stores. I wonder if these are real accounts or if these are like 77 brigade, brigade. accounts. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to tell. But there's, so you can see there's all sorts of abuse being hurled on, on Twitter, Mike. We'll look at the, uh, Another one here, Asda and Sainsbury stores unilaterally not enforcing the face mask law. They're calling it a law there. Uh, food business encouraging law breaking in the midst of a global pandemic. The public should boycott these stores. But in the interests of extreme free enterprise, free for all, they probably won't, says Peter Rees. Okay, and the, another one here. Uh, this is Matt Collins. You can see the profile picture has a mask on it. He's very, very uh, on board with the whole agenda. Many UK police have said that they will actively not be enforcing mask rules, and now Sainsbury's are saying this. They're a real, this is, they are a really bad message to, pub, to public allies sent to the people. Wear a damn mask here, and of course they're retweeting Sainsbury's statement there. And John Sloan here, oh, well, uh, well, no longer will be using Sainsbury's. Shame, uh, really, as they are my favorite supermarket, but must put my family's safety first. I have to say, there's, there's not much evidence of any literacy in many of these tweets, uh, Patrick. Or maybe it's the rage, which is uh, and sort of determination to get the tweet out as fast as possible. It's causing the mistakes, but it, anyway. It could be, or just a lack of grammar acumen by your 77 Brigade uh, Twitter battery there. So, and you can see they're flying the rainbow flag here. Elliot is saying, Team Spice, he's saying, uh, reading, masks are now mandatory in shops, and some shops like Sainsbury's, Asda, etc., won't challenge you if you don't wear a mask in the same sentence. What's the point, then, you absolute donkeys? <laughs> Just wear a mask for your two-minute trip to Tesco for a Snickers, mate. So, okay, right. So there you can see some of the rage here. And this is interesting. This person here, Mike, is threatening to sue uh, Sainsbury's here. Don't worry, Sainsbury's. My solicitor will be contacting yours about your lack of diligence in applying your obligations of duty of care to customers and staff. The only message is no mask, 
keep your money in your germs, says Leslie Midnight. That's definitely a, a sock puppet account there, but there's, <laughs> there's no shortage of any of these people. And so what is this going to lead to, Mike? You, you, you said earlier, we were discussing this, you said this could lead to fights breaking out. You just said, and, and not, not a few minutes after you, we, you and I discussed that this morning, I saw this uh, tweet come out here. This is uh, Matt here saying, 10.05 a.m., I entered Sainsbury's at 10.08. There's a fight in the second aisle because someone hasn't got a mask on. And a lady with her kid was panicking and shouting at the anti-masker. You can see the, uh, the, the, the insults are already being ramped up there. And what's the end result? Lady picks up a tub of double cream and throws it in there face. So food fights are breaking out all over the country, Mike, in Britain. It's absolute pandemonium. What are we going to do? How is Boris going to take control of this and get control of this situation and wrestle it to the ground like a whack-a-mole? What's the government going to do about this? I, I have no idea. Have you got suggestions? <laughs> no, I don't. Right. So, And so here's the uh, contrarian argument here. And there's a the majority of the comments right now on social media are basically saying thumbs up to Sainsbury's, well done. So it's not all bad press here. He's saying well done, Sainsbury's, for having respect for the people who don't want to wear masks. This emotional blackmail about stopping the spread is ridiculous. Why should people wear masks four months into this madness? It just proves the scientists are clueless. He's talking about the government science advisors, of course. Yes. So. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? So how, how's this going to end up? I think my personal opinion is I think this is going to fall apart, Mike, within two weeks, just like the 14-day quarantine uh, that the uh, Pretty Patel was... was, was to implement, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. just fell apart. It fell apart quickly. The market forces, I think, are going to make this really difficult, and there is a rebellious streak that has been bubbling up in Britain. Mm. We haven't seen that rebellious streak for so long and now it's coming so I think this is going to make it very difficult to enforce. Well I think that's right but uh, but on the other hand uh, it's pretty clear from some of the press yesterday I think the front page of the eye uh, yesterday in particular uh, suggesting that this winter is going to be extremely difficult a combination of uh, the second wave of COVID in inverted commas plus influenza we were talking about this on the program on Wednesday uh, plus this type of social unrest that's starting to build within the population. The divisiveness that there was over Brexit has just been, uh, you know, overlaid onto the mask issue, onto the COVID issue. Uh, and, and so we're seeing divisions within the, the, the population of the country, which, as you've highlighted here, are starting to, to appear within, you know, on the streets. Uh, this winter, I think, is going to be very, very difficult unless people get to grips with what's going on. We'll talk about those divisions in a, in a few minutes, Mike. We'll also talk about some, we'll give some suggestions to our, uh, our viewers as to what alternatives they might have or options in terms of masks, because there's a lot available out there, and we'll walk you through some of those solutions in a minute. But uh, we're, we're looking here at the United States, and this is just a poll that was done recently. 72% of Americans support mask mandates punishable by fines or jail time. And of course, this person is uh, the peak of innovation here. He's got a Norton antivirus CD-ROM uh, uh, with a rubber band around his face. Kind of a tongue-in-cheek there, Mike. But this is coming. Why this story is amazing, Mike, is coming after more than half of the United States uh, governments in the states have issued mandatory mask requirements. And again, it's coming as the pandemic quote, or the epidemic is tailing off, then they're really ramping up all of these uh, requirements and rules. So we're seeing that U UK and the U.S. seem to be in lockstep in terms of, you know... Sorry, goose step, did you say? In, in goose step <laughs> or lockstep, Rockefeller style, uh, in terms of where they're going uh, with their policies. So, um, but... Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, look. Uh, this morning, Patrick, uh, we showed we led off with the BBC headline, but the BBC was extremely helpful because I'm sure there are lots of people out there uh, don't know what to do with a mask if they have one, um, and so they produced a video. and And I, I think we're going to be justified in in using this today because uh, although the BBC may try to claim copyright on it, there's a bit of criticism to be done here, and so um, there's going to be uh, this is definitely fair dealing. Uh, so let's have a look at this. Masks won't work if you wear them incorrectly. They need to go over your mouth and nose because it's when infected people sneeze achoo, or when they talk loudly cough, or sing that they spray droplets into the air and COVID-19 can spread. So if your nose is sticking out, it's easier for droplets to get out. 
Same if you don't cover your mouth. Minimise the gaps. And yes, you've got it. You're minimising the droplet spread. Now, because you can have coronavirus but also not have any symptoms, the advice is to wear masks anywhere you can't keep your distance from other people. No, not like that. Like this. Do not touch any part of your mask apart from the straps in case you contaminate it. This includes pulling it up or down and resting it on another part of your head. When you've finished, take it off from behind and store it where you can't contaminate anything else and wash your hands. Single-use masks go in the bin, but you can wash homemade coverings regularly using your normal detergent. But remember, face coverings alone won't stop coronavirus. You need to keep regularly washing your hands, catching coughs and sneezes, and practicing social distancing. So when I showed you that earlier, Patrick, the first comment you made about it was, well, lots of red and yellow in that, yeah. uh, in that particular video. And of course, these are the colours of the Chinese flag. Yeah. Uh, there's, this is subliminally, subliminally uh, f forcing the idea on people that this is a Chinese problem. We've got to hit the Chinese. Besides that, was there anything else that stuck out with you on that? Propaganda well, piece. I mean, it is it is literally a propaganda piece, and uh, the utter childishness of the whole thing, for a start. Uh, they are speaking to the general public as if they are two-year-olds in uh, uh, reception class in school, in primary school, and and you know need to be taught how to uh, wipe their bottoms. It's a, it is appalling. I, I thought the thing that I noticed, Mike, is they said that uh, you know don't wear your mask uh, below your nose because that's like breaking the rules. And they said, because you could sneeze. So basically, as long as you don't sneeze, then it's okay, according to that propaganda video, to have the mask below your nose. And that would allow people to breathe uh, through their nose and be much more relaxing and pleasant, right? And what happens if you sneeze? What have we done if you do sneeze? What has mankind done for the longest period of time? Don't we have tissues, uh, handkerchiefs, Kleenexes? We step away, we sneeze into a handkerchief. Are we no longer using tissues? Or handkerchiefs now is that? That's not, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. What but do you sneeze into your mask or like what are the? It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to sneeze into your mask. That's going to be a healthy thing to do in the coming, uh, in the coming winter. But but look, uh, the the BBC's video may not have been clear enough for people. So yeah. so we thought we would uh, we would explain a bit more about uh, what kind of masks are appropriate. And what, what options aren't, people what options have? People okay. have. Okay. Let's run through some of those uh, options. So so here's the first one. You've shown this on the program in the past, Patrick. Uh, of course, this uh, allows people to get a better idea of. Emotions, perhaps, in their in the people they're interacting with, because you can see the, the people's mouths, whether they're smiling or frowning or what it might be. Sure, there's a fetching couple here, and of course they're probably very expressive, expressive, and so forth. So this type of item works for them, and it follows all of the safety guidelines. Absolutely. So that one gets a tick. Uh, unfortunately, this mask doesn't get a tick, Patrick. This one wouldn't work uh, because uh, because. That does not uh, cover your mouth and nose, so that isn't no, going to work. It doesn't work for, for, for stopping the virus, but it, it might work for other things. We'll get on to that in a minute uh, when we talk about what's popular in Westminster, Mike. But yeah, we'll absolutely. Hold that thought. Absolutely. Uh, this might be an option, uh, using more than one mask at a time. Well, this is, you know, we have to give a lot of credit to this person here. They've doubled up, basically. So not only do they have the um, a bandana, but they've got the, the kind of surgical... Uh, thing you know the, the, over the top of it, so so th that's double protection, it's double layers. Is it enough? Is it enough scientifically? We don't know. Could the virus get through both of those layers? We don't know. But they're really making that extra effort, Mike. Yeah. So they're so probably they're going to pass. They, they pass the safety pass. test. Uh, there. This one passes the safety test as well. This does. Now this might look like an unconventional solution, folks, but. In these troubled times, we need to be innovative in our problem solving, and this actually works because it does cover the nose. According to the BBC, uh, this would would pass. Absolutely, this passes. Pass. Yes, exactly. Uh, but th this one will not pass because, unfortunately, there are holes uh, for you to breathe through in the nose. There, so there are, but we, there's ways. You know, if you insert some tape or something like that over the nostrils inside, that might make it passable, basically. Okay. How you would breathe, though, is another question, uh, uh, because it is a solid, that's the sort of fan, Phantom of the Opera model. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, here's another positive one. Yeah, I like this for a number of reasons. And the reason I like this, A, because it's cost-effective, um, there's, so there's no barrier to entry on cost. You can buy a whole pack of filters uh, wholesale, and you've got basically, and you could change your mask 
literally a few times a day. It won't cost you a lot, easy to dispose of. And as you can see, Mike, he has customized this mask by putting a, a message on there. So this type of thing allows you to express yourself. I like this yeah, okay. on so many levels. Okay, so that gets a tick. Uh, this one gets a tick as well, and perhaps if people are fighting in uh, supermarkets, perhaps we'll see much more of this type of thing. Sure, and uh, what I like about this is she was in inspired by that film Guardians of the Galaxy. This is the I Am Groot mask, but just really using a simple piece of lettuce. And um, it's, so it works on so many levels, and guess what? You can eat it afterwards. So, I mean, what's not to like about that? Okay, uh, but this one, unfortunately, won't work, Patrick. Uh, putting a piece of cardboard with a fist drawn on it, that, that isn't going to work. Well, that's arguable. I like this. As, as long as they can hold their hand up long enough to, 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 to sustain that pose, then it, technically it does work, Mike. Okay. You know, it provides okay. a barrier in the shield. I think you're being a little bit too uh, critical on that one. Uh, this one? This, this, now, this might look like it's unconventional and a bit weird, but guess what? This is an absolutely incredible adaptation. Look, look at the way that the bottom of the sneaker fits nicely, naturally, around the chin. So it does mimic the curvature of the face. Not only that, but there's literally three layers, three barriers of filter inside that trainer, inside that shoe. And it comes with the shoelaces, automatically can be used to tie, and it's adjustable in size. I mean, this ticks every box. Uh, absolutely. Practically. So that, that gets a big green tick. That, that's better than the coffee filter. Why? Because the shoe is more durable, and it's going to last longer, and it's got so much protection. I like this a lot. Uh, okay. Uh, this one this one, I'm giving it, going to give a tick to, Patrick, because uh, this, of course, is a pinball mask. Uh, People will be scared of anybody wearing this. It's, it fits any, any size, uh, and uh, so it automatically enforces social distancing. So I'm, I'm but, arguing that there's a tick on this. But, but, but a mosquito could fly right through there and in. So if a mosquito can fly in, I'm sure the coroni could slide in there as well. Now, I do like the look of that. And on balance, Mike, I think the styling, the look trumps the safety features on that. I'm careful I'm, with the word Trump there. You can't, don't, don't no use No pun that. intended, but I like that, Mike. For, for, for the aesthetics, I think, forget about the safety. I like it. Okay. Now this, you know. We're I, gonna put a question mark on this one, Patrick. Sure, I mean, Al-Qaeda has been given a bad rap over the years, but in the age of Corona, it seems that they have a few sort of advantages or sort of the jihadi look, if you will. Now this could work, this is a good solution, but it's gonna probably require additional hardware um, if you want to get the full authentic and scare the virus away, yeah, with yeah. a vest, a belt, or you know, possibly a, a Kalashnikov. So you know, we're, the jury's out on this, Mike. The jury's out. A lot okay. of potential, though. A lot of potential, and the fashion for fashion, it gets a big thumbs up. Um, well, this face mask isn't working very well. No, it isn't, and uh, so that that's getting an X there. She's surprised, shocked, and excited all at the same time. I wonder why that could be. Maybe she's just seen Caroni. Uh, uh, but uh, there is a type of face mask that we are, have been told, although I haven't verified this information, has been doing the rounds of, of Westminster. It's this one. Well, yes, that's right. So this is, off, this is from Newsthump, actually, .com. And uh, if you look closely, that is Michael Gove uh, behind that um, gimp mask. But unfortunately, uh, that, that has to get an X, Patrick, because uh, it's not preventing... Breathing through the nose, and it's uh, and and there's a zip on the mouth as well, which could be used in, inefficiently or incorrectly. It could. Plus, it's just completely unsightly and disturbing. So it fails on the safety side, and it also fails on the aesthetic side. So definitely, we're not going to endorse that. Um, but uh, uh, things in Plymouth aren't looking very good. No, and just on on our way to the studio here, and I, I can't tell you how many of these I passed on the ground, and there's just something disturbing about seeing these everywhere. So the, the whole masks have become like additional rubbish. We see them floating in the ocean. We see them on the side of the road. They're basically everywhere. People are what, just throwing them on the ground. Yeah. So it's just more rubbish, more trash. So it's kind of disgusting, but you know. Um, but there, it's, not, it's not all bad news. For some, uh, for some demographics in society, things are looking up because, of course, uh, the requirement to wear face masks in shops 
uh, gives armed robbers any you know plenty of opportunity to ply their trade. Uh, uh, I, I, he he could get a hundred pound fine right there because look, it's below the nose as well. He doesn't even have it on properly. Uh, absolutely. So this is from Insider, and they're saying there's been a surge in armed robberies in California as criminals use coronavirus face masks to hold up stores. Uh, here's another one from W Top News: anonymous and emboldened how mask use affects criminal behaviour. Uh, and this is the sun, uh, because uh, an, ex, uh, an SAS trained security expert is saying the coronavirus face mask could be used by terrorists to hide their identity. So, uh, yeah. so some demographics at least uh, are seeing a positive uh, res result of uh, the requirement to wear face masks in shops. Who saw that coming? Uh, just about everyone, I think. So I'm, I'll, I'll make one last statement on this. And, you know, with regards to masks, lockdown, um, I don't know if, if you've noticed this as well, Mike, but there there seems to be more prevalence in terms of the, the over-enthusiasm for lockdown, for social distancing, for masks. And it's very much, um, I'll make a political comment here, but it's very much on the political, the left. These are people who are very pro-nanny state, um, labor, uh, self-proclaimed socialists, bourgeois, uh, communists, Marxists, anti-civil liberties. So I, I think this is under the culture war banner. The masks, uh, lockdown, COVID has kind of come in. I think, Mike, it was already there with Brexit, as you said before. And do you, th do you think it's an un it would be an unfair statement to say that that line, wherever that line is between pro and, and anti, uh, you're suggesting it's that the pro camp is more on the left uh, side of politics? Yes. Do you think that that line follows the Brexit divide quite closely as well? I think it does. So mm. very much these are Remainers. Uh, these are people who support... Um, Black Lives Matter in, in a really enthusiastic way. Of course, we, we, we support anti-racism in general. Everybody should, but I'm talking about the political side. So it's, it's, it is very much mirroring the, the, the culture wars theme, and that's kind of disturbing. And, and so the herd mentality, these are very much statists. These are people who really believe that big central government has all of the solutions. They tend to be very pro China in the sense of pro-Chinese Communist Party, pro-big state interventions. And, but what it is, Mike, is it, it's provided a, uh, an opportunity for people to morally grandstand, basically. Mm -hmm. So they're clinging to lockdown. I mean, in the U.S., the Democrats are clinging to the lockdown and clinging to unemployment and clinging to social distancing as, a, as an election feature because they have nothing else really to hold on to. And I think in the U.K., the, we see some similar themes here is they're using it to bludgeon the political opposition with. Mm. So, and it's funny, these are the same people. Um, I think uh, Spiked Online had a podcast recently, and I think it was Brendan O'Neill or someone else commented on this. These are the same people that's, that were saying that Boris Johnson was the biggest fascist going before the general election around the time of the um, the, the Brexit um, deadline and so forth. Right. This was the biggest fascist government. And now they are demanding lockdown. These are the same people demanding all sorts of draconian rules. The same people on the left are demanding fascism, fascism mm -hmm. from the government. So I think this is politically motivated. It's, I think it's, it's born out of desperation as well. Absolutely. Okay, before we move on, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, there are options to help us out there, and that would be very, very much appreciated. Um, now, Patrick, uh, I suppose we could say the theme here is that Coroni is confused. Uh, we've been talking about this for a number of weeks, but with respect to mask wearing, uh, Coroni is particularly confused because there seems to be uh, again, strange things going on. So let's look at the uh, advice from Transport for London for wearing face coverings. Uh, and they're saying that the requirement to wear a face covering on TFL's public transport stations, platforms and services does not apply to uh, children under the age of 11. Children don't need to wear masks. Uh, but it doesn't apply to employees of or persons providing agreed services to TFL. So uh, Coroni's confused because uh, Coroni... Is it doesn't really understand why uh, people that are employees of TFL don't need to wear masks when members of the public do. Well, this means Caroni can't decide who to attack. I mean, he's a virus. So he's saying they won't let me attack employees or persons providing uh, contract services for TFL. They won't let me uh, attack children under 11. 
So Caroni is rightly confused, Mike. Rightly, absolutely. But he, he's also not allowed to attack police constables, including British transport police officers, uh, acting in the course of their duty. Uh, I think he is allowed to attack police constables if they if they finished their duty and they're on their way home, for example. But so they can, okay, so he can go for them when the, when they're off duty. Absolutely. Right? Okay. So once they've clocked off, that's they seem to be fair game. Uh, but members or employees of the emergency services responding to an emergency, they also don't need to wear masks because Coroni isn't going to attack them either. Right. Uh, so that's good. Uh, but it doesn't end there because, of course, Boris Johnson was uh, in Scotland yesterday to uh, support the union. Uh, because the union is all he thinks about, keeping the UK together. The, the sheer might of the union of the United Kingdom has saved 900,000 job, 900, jobs, apparently. Uh, and this is one of the things he said uh, while he was there. Uh, the last six months has shown exactly why the historic and heartfelt bond that ties our four nations of our country together is so important. Uh, but this has confused Caroni once again. He is absolutely can't work this out. Because actually, when it comes to uh, coronavirus and the response to coronavirus, uh, well, the question is, was it a national response? And the answer is, no, it wasn't. Uh, because there were different laws in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, which meant that anybody going from one part of the country to another, if they were even allowed to go from one country, part of the country to, to another, uh, couldn't actually know unless they were paying pretty close attention what the law was in one of the other countries of the UK. Uh, and of course, the new local lockdowns that are going to be taking place uh, over the winter, the coming winter, mean different laws in counties and cities. Um, so really, what are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about the end of common law in the UK. Common law is the idea that the law is common to all parts of the country and we understand where we stand uh, with respect to, to the law anywhere. Uh, that ends, that effectively spells the end of the nation as a nation if we're going to divide it up in this way. I've got to, I've got to, my, my take on this, Mike, is I think you're absolutely correct here. But also, I think this is an advantage to central government because if you can if you can delegate or devolve uh, COVID policy to different regions and different cities, for instance, um, then it's very it's more difficult for there to be a national movement against central government because they can just pass the buck uh, to the various authorities and say, well, it's not our policy; it's the local policy. So uh, it does require, I think. Uh, the government, local governments and the national governments to be on the same page as far as defining the threat or the crisis. So what we're looking well, for... Well, that, that definition is going to come from the Cabinet Office, that's, mm. that's clear, but it's going to be implemented differently in each locality. So, so each, each local uh, council or each city council, each uh, county council is being given the opportunity to devise their own response plans. Uh, so they're not getting response plans handed to them. They're getting uh, some guidance handed to them from the Cabinet Office and they're being told to do it by the Cabinet Office and they're being uh, checked on by the Cabinet Office to make sure that it's been done and they've got deadlines from the Cabinet Office. Uh, but, uh, but of course, the, the, what is actually implemented is going to be different in each, each area. So that's a federal model. So that's in a, in a smaller scale, what's, that's what we have in the United States where state governments and local governments within the state, county governments and city governments are really in charge. They have the final say but they get guidance from central government. So this is, it'll be interesting to see if there's a co competition, Mike, if anybody uh, goes kind of their own way on this and maybe takes a more conservative or sort of relaxed approach, liberal approach uh, to managing the crisis, um, that could create you know, differences in how it's being managed and maybe um, it can show that you know, some people won't be following the diktats of you know the, the party line basically. Uh, absolutely. So uh, Covey's uh, is confused because he, he doesn't really understand why Boris is saying that he's keeping the union together when in fact what he's doing is breaking it up. Uh, but uh, it gets better because uh, no matter what's going on in the UK as a whole globally, uh, the law is going to be taken in hand by on a global level. This is the COVID-19 Law Lab. It's launched today. Uh, it, uh, it's an initiative which they say gathers and shares legal documents from over 190 countries in the world, across the world, to help states establish and implement strong legal frameworks to manage the pandemic. The goal is to ensure that laws protect the health and well-being of individuals, communities, and that they adhere to, inter they adhere to international human rights. So this is about creating a global legal framework uh, for dealing with COVID-19. Uh, let's have a look and see what uh, one of the instigators, the World Health Organization, had to say about this. Strong legal frameworks are critical for national 
coronavirus uh, responses. Dr. Tedros himself. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It, it, it's very Orwellian, Mike. This is the, it's, it does the opposite of what they're advertising. It, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, but so who's behind this? Well, the uh, United Nations Development Programme, the World Health Organization, the Joint United Nations Programme on HIV and AIDS, uh, and the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University are, are the main uh, instigators of it. Uh, and the initiative, as I say, aims to support countries to achieve uh, a universal framework for their, how the, the, the legal response to this. Shouldn't each country uh, be responsible for its own sovereignty, Mike? Its own laws? Or? That that might be your opinion. That might be mine. Uh, but uh, that also might be, uh, you know, we might be uh, just old-fashioned, Patrick. Yeah. So gl the globalists taking advantage of the crisis in order to sort of sink their hooks a little bit deeper uh, into the national sovereignty issue. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, Brian on Wednesday was talking about uh, what's coming this winter. Uh, well, the government has now announced a bit, we're given a bit more information on this, and it is that they intend to vaccinate 30 million people uh, for influenza this year. This is a much bigger, well, they're describing it as the most comprehensive flu program in the UK, in UK history. To be rolled out this winter, they're going to vaccinate more than 30 million people during the flu season, million more, millions more than received it last year. Uh, this is apparently to protect vulnerable people and to support the NHS. Uh, so here's what Matt Hancock had to say. It's mission critical that we put out all the stops to get ready for the winter. Uh, and the Prime Minister has already announced three billion pounds to protect the NHS. So this isn't about protecting you or I or any other individual in the country. This is about protecting the NHS. Uh, I find this very interesting because, of course, they've just recently written off uh, all, the, you know, all the NHS debt. Um, so why would you do that, Patrick? Well, perhaps if you were ready to privatise and you wanted to s start selling it off, mm -hmm. you need to get rid of all, any liabilities. So anyway, this is all about protecting the NHS because if, if it's a saleable asset, it's got to be protected. Um, so what they're saying is that households of those uh, on the shielded patient list, Patrick, are eligible for a free flu vaccination. Uh, but don't worry, uh, you know, anybody over the age of 50 will also get a free vaccination uh, later in the flu season because... Uh, that's, you know, that's just how it works. Um, and uh, so, uh, as we say, Matt Hancock had that to say. Let's have a look at, uh, at what Chris Whitty had to say. He said, flu can have serious consequences uh, and vulnerable people can die of it. Uh, having the vaccine protects you and helps reduce uh, transmission to others. So my oh, question does was... Does it? Uh, uh, good question. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, my question was... I wonder why are they starting to push flu at this particular moment? And so let's uh, just suggest a reason here. Uh, coronavirus 2020, well, that killed 46,000 people in the UK. Uh, and uh, at least that's what they say. It's, According to how they counted and tabulated. Exactly. Uh, and they are concerned that children don't spread coronavirus, mm -hmm. right? Whereas flu, it's much more useful because, for example, in 2018, 50,000 people died. Uh, in the UK as a result of flu during that flu season. Uh, children do spread the flu, and so it, from that respect, it's much more useful. So they're going to bring flu back into this. So what's the vaccination part got to do with it? Well, let's have a look at this. Oh, I've, I've unfortunately put corona over the top of that. Um, I'm going to have to, well... But basically it's saying that uh, there's an increased risk, right? Well, it's a randomized trial which is showing that... The, uh, Children who had received the flu vaccine um, uh, ended up uh, being much more susceptible to other respiratory infections. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually uh, caused uh, major pro or caused problems for them afterwards. So again, Corona is confused here uh, because uh, uh, if you vaccinate somebody for one thing, uh, that makes it much more likely that Corona is going to attack. Um, uh, you know, so uh, my point is that uh, ramping up the flu vaccines does a whole range of things. It allows them to produce a narrative uh, implying a much more dangerous uh, winter season in terms of health. It also allows them to, um, in fact, have a medical or cause a medical response in people, which amplifies the effect of other resp respiratory diseases. What, what I'm concerned is the flu, the flu shot is now being paired with the uh, ever imminent uh, coronavirus super, super vaccine. 
cure-all super vaccine. So this is, this is my concern. It's becoming like a two-for-one thing. Since when did the flu shot ever become sort of the model of e efficacy? All of a sudden, we're just told that we must have a flu shot, and it, and it works, and so forth. The, there's people panning the flu shot for years, in fact, and it hasn't slowed down the prevalence and vir virility of the flu, a seasonal flu virus. The numbers sure don't, surely don't show that. Mm. So if anything, it, 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 it lends to what you're saying, Mike, is that there is a, a correlation between the uh, flu job and increase uh, risk and uh, sickness to what respiratory diseases. Absolutely. Uh, but Patrick, what's the situation with uh, herd immunity in the UK? Well, herd immunity in the UK, I know this is a bad word and we, we shouldn't say the word herd immunity. We don't offend anybody. But uh, this is interesting. This is a paper that was uh, released by uh, one of Oxford University's lead epidemiologists and on their team. And this is on, on a website called Reaction. It's a great interview here with Professor Sunetra Gupta from Oxford University. We, we, we may already have herd immunity, says uh, Professor Gupta. And this is a really important discussion because she's bringing up a lot of um, areas here that I think the government are not talking about. And mind you, Mike, this is one of the top epidemiologists in the country, so surely uh, we should be listening to what she has to say. She says, what I didn't anticipate was that some of our responses to previous exposure to seasonal coronaviruses might actually protect us from infection. You've been talking about this yes. and covering this on the show. And uh, basically what she's talking about is it's one thing to get infected and not ill, uh, but what the new studies are showing is that people are actually fighting off the infection. And she goes on to say, so that even um, on a more basic level, the pre-existing antibodies or T-cell responses against coronavirus seem to protect against infection, not just the outcome of infection. So what she's basically saying is that uh, all of the, the antibody testing, for instance, isn't going to tell you um, everything. It's not going to tell you about adaptive immunity, about T-cell responses, about um, training your immune system from previous coronaviruses, that, that that's allowing people to sort of fight off the virus in the early stages. So, uh, and, and, and beyond that, Mike, more people have been exposed uh, to this than the seroprevalence studies, antibody studies, mm -hmm. are showing. So, and, and she's very careful not to speak in any definitive um, statements because the, there's so much we're learning still. This is what they're saying in Sweden and other places. But the government is speaking with this absolute cocksure certainty about everything, and they've been wrong about just about everything mm -hmm. from the beginning. So at what point do we have to sort of say, now why is this important? Well, let's put this in the context of this. This was in Bloomberg today. They're talking about the wonder vaccine uh, that's coming out here. So basically, uh, the, the world is also in the midst of a race to find a safe and effective vaccine against COVID-19. Uh, the leading contender, contender comes from the UK, AstraZeneca. Vaccine generated an immune response in a group of 1,000 patients. That's an interesting talking point that they're drifting out there. So they're, they're, what they're trying to uh, sell the public here is that you can only get this immune response from a vaccine. In other words, you know, so natural immunity doesn't exist. Forget about your natural immune system. You need synthetic immunity, and we've got it in the form of a uh, all singing and dancing coronavirus vaccine. So that's the marketing pitch. Uh, absolutely, and we just should remember once again that the AstraZeneca vaccine, this is the vaccine which Matt Hancock has announced uh, a few weeks ago, is being mass-produced whether or not it receives final approval. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the question on many people's minds is, uh, does that mean that they have been uh, given a deal where they will get paid for that vaccine, whether the approval is awarded or not? Or does that mean that they have been basically assured that no matter what the result of clinical trials, the approval is going to come? And, and we're talking about 100 million doses and what? They've done a sample with 1,000 patients yes. in, in rushing it in like two or three months. I mean, that's not exactly due diligence in terms of uh, rolling out uh, a safe and effective vaccine, is yeah. it? And the clinical trials now, by the way, in case anybody's forgotten, are taking place in Brazil uh, because there aren't enough patients or potential patients in the UK to run the clinical trials. It all just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So uh, Dr. Gupta goes on here, makes some other really important points. Let's just touch on one of these here. People are treating treating this, the, the, the crisis, the pandemic she's talking about, are treating it like an external disaster, like a hurricane or a tsunami. 
is if you can batten down the hatches and it will be gone eventually. That is simply not correct, she says. The epidemic is an ecological, has an ecological relationship uh, that we have to manage between ourselves and the virus. So she's saying that we have to get used to living with this as we do with the seasonal influenza, as we do with TB, as we do with so many other things. And she continues here. She said, then there's the social economic axis. We're talking about here, lockdown, economy, and so forth, she says. So, which is being ignored. We are closing ourselves off, not just to the disease, but to other aspects of being human. Mm. This is an important part of the conversation. So she's, she's been saying this from the beginning, that we, we, we haven't calculated the effects of lockdown. Um, it's almost like it's an afterthought. It's all about crushing the virus or battening down the hatches and uh, eliminating the virus. We've even said you know, completely eviscerating the virus. It's not going to happen. Mm. So, but this is what politicians are saying. And so this leads us to this. This was a report that just came out you know, a few days ago. I think you might have touched on this on a previous program, Mike, but it's worth reminding here that the, the government had a report back in April, um, and they went by their worst-case scenario in terms of lockdown deaths, 500,000 deaths. Imperial College was touting as a worst-case scenario. Government ran with that and imposed lockdown and all kinds of draconian measures we still have today, but they ignored this part of this report, Mike, which was that there would be 200,000 lives lost because of lockdown policies. So they run with the computer modeling on one hand, but then when there's other computer modeling that's saying something, they completely seem to ignore it or not acknowledge it. So the government had access to both of these opinions, mm. and they tended to go with the worst-case scenario. What does that tell you about the mentality of government, of state management right now today? That it's all about going for the worst-case scenario just in case and then pulling back. So it's a very risky mentality. They think they're doing the safe thing, mm. but in fact they're taking huge risks at the public expense. All right. Uh, there have been a, f a number of people sending very interesting and fantastic uh, emails to their MPs asking questions about everything that's going on with respect to coronavirus. Uh, so here are some chosen questions from one viewer. Now, I'm not going to uh, show all the questions, just uh, three. Uh, but uh, let's look at uh, the first question that I want to highlight here. He says the British government have stated that COVID-19 was probably present uh, in England as early as the autumn of 2019. Can you therefore explain why there were no excess deaths from around this period until after lockdown on the 23rd of March 2020? Perhaps COVID was enjoying furlough is the question. Um, and uh, well, his MP is this man, uh, Dan Poulter. He is uh, MP for, Su uh, for Suffolk. Uh, and uh, he says, although there is emerging evidence that COVID-19 was present in the UK as early as autumn 2019, Transmission is low. I presume he meant transmission was low. He then went on to say transmission increased in early 2020 and the first excess deaths were then recorded. Uh, well, this is uh, confusing uh, Coroni once again, uh, because, of course, as we have highlighted on this program, uh, when we look at the uh, graph uh, and we look at when the lockdown took place and we look at the period before lockdown, uh, Coroni was really not very busy at all, wasn't doing very much. In fact, as we've highlighted before, uh, the weekly deaths up until the lockdown were below the five-year average. Um, so those are the lockdown deaths, uh, as we're calling them, not coronavirus deaths at all. So what you're saying, Mike, is Coroni was around. He was around. He was, he was... Well, he was even around for, for th at least three months before that this graph even begins. But he, was, he didn't seem to be very busy, or he wasn't, like, killing people no, at that time. No, not, not at all, no. So what was killing people? You're saying that it's, it might very well be the lockdown policy itself? Well, the, the, uh, the excess mortality didn't arrive until the lockdown was implemented. So, so it's, it's so... very, very interesting. Let's go back to to the questions from the viewer and see what uh, what he went on to say. He said, uh, Sage recommended using media to increase the sense of personal threat. Uh, and that was from Appendix B of the Appease Evaluation Grid for options to rapidly increase general so social distancing. What risk assessment was completed by the British government prior to this tactic being unleashed on the population? Uh, and the response from uh, Dan Poulter was, the government took all the required steps in ensuring the legality of the lockdown measures introduced. So uh, Caroni's uh, pretty confused about this answer as well because that doesn't really answer the question. It doesn't uh, uh, it 
doesn't discuss the issue of risk or or doesn't matter what the legalities were. The question was, is there not a, a requirement on the government to assess risk and work out whether, in fact, more people are going to die uh, as a result of a particular policy through stress or whatever? Yeah, he's just saying we our lawyers rubber stamped it. Move on. Move on. Yeah. Right. So let's look at uh, another question from our viewer. Uh, and uh, he was he asked uh, which individual authorized the fraudulent completion of death certificates during this crisis and of course here he's referring to the, the fact that uh, death certificates are being uh, signed off as people having died of COVID-19 uh, when in fact the, the best you can say is they died with it uh, since at this point only 1300 people as uh, in, in England anyway uh, according to Public Health England, only 1,300 people have died so far with no other underlying uh, health conditions. Uh, and the response from Dan Poulter, uh, absolutely spectacular response here. Corona, Corona, very confused. And again, I've done that incorrectly. Uh, but basically, he said that uh, that, that question was potentially libelous. Mm, okay, so he's saying that uh, uh, he's not answering the question about about the what was actually a, didn't answer the question at all, which is why Coroni's uh, confused again. Yeah. Did not answer the question at all. He attempted to bat the question off by throwing back yeah. uh, an implication that the, that the phrasing of the question was uh, was defamatory. And, and the issue of counting Corona people who died with coronavirus or from coronavirus that's actually central to to the whole argument because those numbers, the death toll, drives policy. So this is. This is the central question, is how are we counting deaths and attributing deaths to COVID-19? It's central. Absolutely. Uh, now, uh, of course, uh, we've had uh, a couple of interesting mainstream articles uh, in, recently, uh, mostly, most uh, notably from uh, Peter Hitchens. Uh, but we have another uh, journalist talking about sensible stuff now, and this is Sherelle Jacobs. Uh, and this is in the Telegraph, viral second wave fear will drive us into another lockdown. Uh, so let's just have a look at what uh, she was saying here. If a second wave is improbable, a second lockdown now looks inevitable. This is a de devastating new twist in Britain's dystopian summer blockbuster. Uh, she said, uh, Imperial College's research needs to be particularly scrutinized uh, as its international influence grows. Dr. Seth Flaxman this week won fresh funding to model a pandemic across several countries. So the, the lessons have not been learned uh, so far uh, with respect to Imperial College's work uh, and uh, the fact that they vastly overinflated the danger of the, the, the virus and uh, effectively caused the lockdown policy. So they failed in their, in their advice to the government, Mike, and now they're being hired by other countries to produce the same Rubbish, yes. Failure again. Uh, absolutely, it's absolutely. Um, so she said that revelations to disrupt the narrative also need to find a stronger voice. Um, she's talking about the scandal of Public Health England's inflated death daily figures running out of mileage. She's talking about the, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine modelling on the impact of the pandemic on cancer deaths, not having even gathered steam. Uh, so to a paper by Oxford's Professor Sunitra Gupta, uh, which uh, elegantly combined those uneasy epidemiological bedfellows, theory and evidence, uh, to find some parts that of the UK may already have reached herd immunity, which we've just discussed. So she's highlighting all these things uh, and really trying to make the point that this hasn't had the coverage in the mainstream that it should have. And she said, finally, instead of mindless second wave tracking on a 24-hour loop, the broadcast media should put its energies into probing the dishonesty of politicians and the assertions of scientists. And again, of course, she's referring to the government scientists here. And this, I think, is, is really important, Patrick, because what we're seeing here is, is somebody effectively coming off script um, and criticizing the mainstream media for not doing their jobs, which is what we've been doing for really since the beginning of this. Which is challenging the government and not acting as a, uh, a stenographer or not just regurgitating things that are coming out of official government announcements. That's not just for COVID, by the way. That should be across the board. Uh, if the press were really doing their job, they would do that on WMDs, chemical weapons attacks in Syria, and of course with the coronavirus as well. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and look, we'll just end the program uh, with this, Patrick. If people didn't see the uh, press conference held by ben, Bill Binney uh, yesterday, 
Um, there is the, uh, the YouTube details uh, on screen at the moment if you'd like to go and see that. I do recommend people do see that. This is critically important because if we, as we've been talking about over the last two or three uh, UK column news programmes, um, the propaganda that's being built up over China and Russia uh, is just staggering, the levels of propaganda, uh, and it, doesn't, it never seems to end, Patrick. Uh, and so he is once again trying to highlight the fact that uh, uh, the WikiLeaks leaks, the DNC email server hack, this did not happen as a result of a hack from Russia. Uh, this happened because the emails were removed from the server via a USB stick. Uh, and uh, and he can demonstrate that. So uh, I absolutely recommend people watch that and distribute that as widely as possible. Yeah, and that's the foundational piece for the whole Russiagate um, uh, fantasy conspiracy, basically, and the whole 2016 election uh, Russia narrative. It's all based on the uh, the emails from the DNC and supposed Russian hacking, right? Well, absolutely, and and of course. Uh, that has now fed into Russiagate UK with the Russia report on this side of the Atlantic as well and the attempts to uh, discredit Boris Johnson in particular uh, with his Russian links, uh, which, you know, nobody's denying that he has links to Russians in the UK. Mm. Uh, the question is whether those links go back to Putin and, uh, and the Russian state, and of course they don't, uh, but also the fact that uh, uh, the claims from the British military, the British intelligence agencies and the British government that Russia and China are hacking uh, constantly cyber warfare on the United States, on the United Kingdom. This narrative has to be stopped because it's dangerous. Yeah, and you, you, you covered, last thing I'll say is you covered uh, a few programs ago about R Russia supposedly hacking the vaccine secrets of, of the UK. And now China has been accused of doing this in America. China has been accused of cyber intrusions to steal the vaccine intelligence from the U.S. So they're constantly recycling this. The same old narrative. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, so do watch that and share it if you possibly can. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual, on Monday. And uh, hope to see you then. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.